from Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So picking up a little bit where we left off last Lord's Day, we considered the nature of that apostolic greeting that Paul gave in Romans chapter 1 verse 7 where he wrote to all those who are in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned last Sunday that many commentators understand this phrase to be something on the order of kind of apostolic boilerplate, just kind of a standard greeting with which the apostles opened their writings. And it's true, to some extent, the apostle Paul used this greeting or something very much like it at the beginning of all of his letters, whether those letters were addressed to the churches or to individuals that he mentored and taught along the way. But regardless of whether or not he used it at the beginning of all of his books, this is scripture that is breathed out by God. And we need to remember that. Because it's breathed out by God, it's scripture that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we shouldn't approach it as just a filler, a greeting at the beginning of the letter, as I mentioned last week, the way that we might write saying, dear sir, even if the sir in question is not at all dear to us. When the apostle Paul wrote grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he meant it. It's not just an empty wish, it's a prayer that comes from the heart of the apostle. It's a prayer that he expects to be answered as God works in the lives of the people in Rome. And it also gives us our first glimpse at the purpose for which he wrote. He wrote to proclaim the gospel for which he had been set apart, and he did so, because the gospel is ultimately going to be the source of that grace and peace that he is praying for the people of God. He's praying to the whole God and, and understand the Holy Spirit is going to do this, but the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish this through the word of God. It's been noted in many places where Paul does not give a Trinitarian formula. He'll say grace and 
peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. Not in every place, only in a couple. But then others have noted when he says grace and peace to you, his expectation is that that grace and peace is going to come through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your life, by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if his prayer is going to be answered, then he understands that it's going to be through the gospel because, in fact, as Al just read for us a moment ago, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a whole sermon there. It's not where this sermon is going, but we need to stop and reflect on that. The gospel is the power of God. We think of our own power as being pretty limited sometimes in many ways. We think of the powers of nations and states and armies and weapons and things like that. None of them begin to compare to the statement that Paul made here in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, which was given to us through apostles or through prophets and seers in the Old Testament and then given to us ultimately through Jesus Christ and confirmed to us by those who heard him that this gospel, this word which we believe and proclaim is the very power of God to save his people and to transform their lives. So to say that the Apostle Paul was gospel-centered, which is a phrase we hear sometimes these days, would be to make the understatement of the ages. Paul was not gospel-centered. Paul was gospel-infused. Someone in the past, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, if I remember correctly, once said of John Bunyan, if you cut him, he'd bleed scripture. It was true of Bunyan, it was certainly true of the Apostle Paul as well. We associate his conversion with his experience of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, but never ever forget that prior to that encounter with the risen Christ, Paul confessed, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Paul, to have arrived at the place where he had arrived in terms of his practice of his Jewish faith, would have memorized the entire Old Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse of Malachi. That's how they sort of advanced you through the ranks as you went on to become a teacher of the Word of God. You started off memorizing the, the law, the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those who did well at that would then memorize the prophets and the Psalms and others. Paul would have known the scriptures even before he was a believer in Jesus Christ, even before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. He was very well schooled in the holy scriptures which are able to make one wise for salvation through that faith which is in Jesus Christ. And that's why right after Paul was converted, he didn't have to go away and consult with others and be taught for several years the truth as it is in Christ. He already knew it. 
Jesus had revealed to his disciples on the road to Emmaus how those Old Testament scriptures with which Paul was so familiar were scriptures that spoke to him and spoke to the gospel that we believe to this very day. So as soon as Christ encountered Paul on the road to Damascus and the Holy Spirit gave life to his heart and he was able to connect the dots between all of those scriptures that he knew so well and this Jesus whom he had been persecuting, we're told that immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, one of the hardest places in the world, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Paul was able to do it right away because he knew the scriptures. Even then, at the very beginning of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ, if you cut him, he'd bleed scripture. And to the Romans, he's not only preaching the word of God, that would come later, he is writing the word of God, the gospel, as the spirit of God carried him along. And he put these words down on parchment so that they would be able to know the Lord our God. And I believe that's how he knew that the work God had given him to do was completely dependent on the power of God himself. As we noted in the very first sermon on this series, Sam Storms wrote, although Paul might have appealed to his educational credentials, his reputation, his other literary works, or some special accomplishment to distinguish himself in the eyes of the Romans, he is first and foremost a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't write to the Romans, citing all of the qualifications that I just cited for you. He wrote to them and he said, beyond all that, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who has to provide the power of God for this ministry to actually take place. So that's why I think considering the task at hand, Paul very early in this book of Romans begins with prayer to his master, Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10 say, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's a prayer. Paul is recording his prayer regarding his relationship with the church at Rome here in verses 9 and 10. But he had already pointed the church to his prayers in verse 8, when he said, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And again, he's not just making a statement the way that we so often hear in our world today where something happens that's favorable or at least less unfavorable to ourselves and somebody will just say, oh, thank God. And maybe sometimes we mean that, and that's good if we do because otherwise it's taking the Lord's name in vain. But for many people, they don't mean it. They're not thinking about God, and they're not even thinking about true thankfulness. They're just expressing, well, that's, that's good. Glad it worked out that way. But when Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, he is truly thanking God in prayer. And it shouldn't surprise us that his apostolic prayers would begin with thanks, even if our prayers often do not. 
In Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he wrote, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the very next verse, he goes on to make a promise. If you do this, if you refuse to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you let your requests be made known to God, then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is one of those conditional things. If you want God's peace to guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus, then in everything by prayer and petition or supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul begins with thankfulness. We also need to note the reason for his thankfulness. He is thankful for the church at Rome, not because they are a lovely community of God's people and have been doing all those churchy things. He says, I am thankful to God in Christ Jesus for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And I used to wonder, faith being apparently a kind of spiritual or esoteric quality, how could someone's faith be proclaimed in all the world. We walk down the street and we see total strangers walking in the opposite direction and we have no idea if they have faith or not. If we don't know them, we don't know them. So what was going on here? What's Paul referring to? Were people going up to Rome and then returning home and testifying that as they worshiped with the saints at Rome, they were so totally moved the guitar solo it just brought me to God. You just feel wave upon wave of faithiness radiating from those people. Well, we could speculate what he's talking about or we could let the apostle himself speak. Because here at the beginning of the letter, he writes of the Roman church's faith being proclaimed in all the world. But if you look at chapter 16, verse 19... Towards the end of the letter, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So in chapter 1, he says, Your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. How would that be? Well, chapter 16, Your obedience is known to all, and the two things are one and the same. They can't be separated. Sometimes in systematic theology, we, we do strange things where we'll talk about, well, you know, in the order of salvation, regeneration precedes faith, faith precedes this, and, and so on. But in biblical theology, we don't separate what ought never to be separated. It's one thing in academic circles to talk about the order of salvation. It's another thing to just understand that when God fastens his love upon a person and determines that he is going to call them to be his own, he works all of these things through his Holy Spirit in ways that can't be quantified. We can't go through and check boxes. Well, I see that you have been regenerated by the Holy, but now there's a long ways to go. 
When the Holy Spirit comes to work in a person's life through the gospel, which is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, then he accomplishes his person or his purpose. He transforms that person. And as we saw in our text last Lord's Day, Paul had received grace and apostleship from Jesus Christ for this very thing so that through the preaching of the gospel he might bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now that's kind of a peculiarly Pauline statement, the obedience of faith, but it comes up quite often, often enough that we shouldn't just blow past that and say, well, faith is faith and obedience is obedience, never the two shall meet. And we're not talking about salvation by works here, not at all. Paul will make that very, very clear as we go on through the book of Romans. But these two texts, one at the beginning of the book and one at the end, show us what that obedience of faith looks like. True faith, saving faith in James' terminology, looks like obedience to the gospel. And that's another Pauline expression. Obedience to the gospel. More often than not, when Jesus called people to be his disciples, he didn't come to them in a vacuum, find them in the midst of a crowd, and say to the whole crowd, hey, believe on me. Faith is just this intellectual, quantitative thing that you can hold in an academic way. What did he say when he confronted disciples whom he was calling to himself? You know, follow me. Come Follow me. This is a gracious call. This is the call of the gospel. And faith comes into it because if you didn't believe that he was worth following, you wouldn't follow him. Lots of people come into our lives from day to day and say, hey, follow me. Do what I do. Let me show you the way to live in our 21st century world and to have all the happiness and joy and peace that you really want. And I guess if we believe them, maybe we follow them. Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And if they believed, they followed him. True faith, saving faith, looks like obedience to the gospel. And true obedience can only come as the consequent, as the result of God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired, saving faith. This is the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and then tell you what wonderful people you are. Not at all. If we go out to do something good in society and somebody approaches us after the thing is done and says, you are such an awesome person, thank you so much for what you just did. Well, in another part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've got your reward. That was it right there. If you do your deeds of righteousness to be seen by others, then you have your reward when other people notice you doing those things. But if we go out and we do these things in the world in such a way that when people approach us and say, I am... I am so thankful that you just shoveled my sidewalk for me. You're an incredible person. That was a lot of work. And we say, you know what? 
I did that because I believe my Savior, Jesus Christ, calls me to do these kinds of things. Well, your neighbor might think you're a nut job. It's possible. But you've just given glory to your Father in heaven. And if there's a reward to be earned in those kinds of things, it's earned in that way when we point away from ourselves and we say, I am doing this to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I am doing this for God. So all around the empire, when people spoke about the church at Rome, they weren't talking about the church at Rome. They were giving glory to God. Not because the Romans were such lovely, hospitable people. They probably were but because their faith was working itself out in these very practical and visible ways. And that's a whole other sermon, as they say. But we were talking about the Apostles' Prayer, which began with thanksgiving, something that we need to remember when we begin our prayers. I think our prayer should always begin with praise and thanksgiving. Um, I know ACTS, adoration, is kind of like thanksgiving, and that's okay. There's no formula here. But our prayers should have thanksgiving built into every part of them. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And that ought to be our beginning point, as we've read so many times from 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's pretty clear. But notice this too. Paul was not only thankful in prayer, he was also submissive to the will of God. Verses 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And don't miss those words. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now succeed in coming to you. This, of course, is Paul's Deo Valente, God being willing. As in James chapter 4, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, Deo Valente, If the Lord wills, we will live. Never mind do this and that. If the Lord wills, we will live. Because we have no control even over that. We can say, well, tomorrow I'm going to get in a car and I'm going to go for a drive and I'm going to visit some friends and we're going to have a great time. I don't even know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I have no control over that. So if the Lord wills, then I will live. And if the Lord wills, then I will go here and there and I will do this and that. Paul understood it. He understood it because he was a slave of Jesus Christ. He understood that whether or not he ever made it to Rome would depend entirely not on his own plans and purposes, but on the will of God. That's not to say he didn't make plans. He did. Verse 13 um, he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented. Again, another whole sermon there. How was Paul prevented from going to Rome? We see this in the book of Acts, where sometimes he wants to go to the left, and the Spirit says, nope, you're going to the right. And evidently that happened in terms of his plans to go to Rome. 
His desire to go there was well meant in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. His plans were well meant, but he knew that his plans were secondary to the Lord's. So he didn't force things. There's an aspect of praying that I think we need to be very, very careful with because there are people out there today who are teaching, don't ask God, make a declaration. Tell God. In the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, this is how it's going to be. And Paul doesn't do anything like that anywhere in the New Testament. He comes along and he says, you know what, I really want to come to see you. I've been prevented thus far, but I understand that if this thing is going to happen, it's going to happen by the will of God. And here's the thing. Paul did make it to Rome, didn't he? We know. We know how that worked out. Paul might have imagined and planned and prayed that someday he was going to get on a boat and he was going to sail to Rome and then he would have the opportunity to go through the city and to visit various house churches there and to proclaim the word of God with freedom in the same way that he had done in so many other places. In Romans 15, he actually wrote, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. That was his plan. That's what he wanted. Ironically, although Paul didn't know it at the time, he went on to write, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, which he did. But we learn in the book of Acts that in Paul's case, the fullness of the blessing of Christ involved being nearly killed in a riot at the temple in Jerusalem and drug away by the Romans in chains. He was off to Antioch first, where he was kept in a cell for quite a little while, a couple of years, until he appealed to Caesar, and he was ultimately sent to Rome by the will of God, bound in chains as a prisoner. But because Paul said, I hope to come to you at last by the will of God, he didn't see it as being a prisoner of Caesar, he says, I write as a prisoner of the Lord. And I wonder, sometimes when we pray, when we go to the Lord to bring him our requests, maybe put some bunny ears around that word, because often our request sounds more like demands. And when we go to the Lord to pray, do we pray that somehow by God's will and in his good time and by his good means, he would accomplish either the things that we desire or if those things that we desire would turn out to be a disaster, then maybe we just say, God, you know best. The things that I desire are things that are going to lead to terrible ends then you know what I'm really praying for here is your will. What I'm really praying for here is that I might be inclined to submit to that will as that will works itself out. I think more often than not, we are inclined to go to God and to just tell God not only what to do. God, you know, I I believe in prayer for healing. I really do. 
I believe that when God's people are ill or struggling with weakness or disease, we as a church need to be in prayer for those people. And I have seen in my life and in my ministry times when it seemed like God intervened in in miraculous ways to bring healing and restoration to people, and that came about as a result of prayer. I have also seen times when people were making prayer declarations over somebody, and that person eventually died without being healed in this life. And we know that true healing comes when we are in the presence of the Lord and at the resurrection of the dead. But how often do we go to God and we say, Lord, heal my loved one, do it now, and preferably do it by miraculous means so that they don't have to go through all the surgery and the treatments that are gonna be so difficult for them. But Paul understood that our thoughts are not always God's thoughts. We don't understand how God is working in all things, prosperity and poverty, sickness and health, life and death even, to accomplish his purpose in our lives. Paul understood that our thoughts are not God's thought and neither are our ways. So he did not go to God and demand and declare. He asked God, I'd really like to go to Rome, and I'd really like to preach the gospel there. I'm indebted both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, and I'd really like to preach the gospel to the people who are at Rome. And then he submitted himself wholly to the will of the one who works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose in all things. And Paul was able to take this attitude Because the last thing I want to highlight in this prayer, if you stop to think about it, Paul's priority in this prayer was not his own stuff. And there again, we go to God and we ask for the stuff that we want, whatever that stuff may be. But Paul's priority was not his own enjoyment, his own comfort, or even his own life. In verse 8, he said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, Because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Well, that had nothing to do with Paul. He had never been there. He had never preached there. He didn't establish the church in Rome. He's just being thankful because he's hearing reports about how the obedience of faith is being seen. People are going to Rome and they're saying, those people. Jesus once said something along the lines, they will know we are Christians by our love. I guess that's the song, not the verse. And that's true. But what did he mean? Sometimes, let me, let me challenge you. Read through the New Testament or the whole Bible sometime, and I don't know what physical act you need to do, but something, every time you encounter the word love, have a little notebook maybe, and you encounter the word love, and in the notebook you write down the reference where you found it, and next to that reference you write, remember, love is not feelings because it never is and so when Jesus said they will know we are Christians by our love he's not saying they're going to know we are Christians when they walk into the assembly of God's people and they see that we're holding hands and we're swaying back and forth and we're singing kumbaya or something along those lines loving God 
is obeying his commands and finding that his commands are not burdensome and loving our neighbor involves obeying those same commands as they are directed towards one another. When we are obedient to God's call for how we relate to one another, that's how we love one another. It's not about feelings. So people were going into the Christian community in Rome and they were seeing that these people were actually following Jesus. They were doing the stuff that Jesus called them to do. They were obeying God's law for their relationship with God and their neighbor. And that's how they knew of their faith and their love. In verses 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And why? Verses 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented. Here's why. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And even then, Rome was one of the premier tourist destinations of the day. But Paul didn't want to go there to do an art and architecture tour. He didn't want to go to the Forum and the Temple to Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill and say, wow, that sculptor, that's, that's some good art right there. He didn't want to go to the Colosseum. Trust me, in those days, the Colosseum was not a place that you wanted to go see if you were a Christian. And maybe it says something that it is a place we want to go see now. But he wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel and to obtain a harvest for the kingdom of God. So in this prayer, he is not asking for things for himself so that he might spend what he received on his own pleasures. And it didn't matter to him how or when he got to Rome or what baggage he brought with him, even if that baggage was chains and fetters, as long as what he could bring with him to Rome was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his prayer was answered when he arrived in Rome as a prisoner and he ministered there while under house arrest, writing letters and proclaiming the gospel, not in the open forum, but in that little house to whoever might come to see him because he understood and believed what he wrote in the very next verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Even if I preach it in chains, even if I preach it as a prisoner, even if the way God's will works out in my life, I have to proclaim the gospel in difficult circumstances. I'm not ashamed of it because it remains the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Some scholars believe that Paul was released for a time after this. We don't, we don't know if he was. It was a short time and he was taken captive and imprisoned again Either way, listen to his heart as he writes his final letter to his true son in the faith, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. This is a man who's getting very, very close to the end. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. But he writes to Timothy to encourage him, and he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. We saw that just last week. 
for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Of course it's not. The gospel is the very power of God. And no one, not Nero Caesar and all the power of the Roman Empire, much less the tin pot rulers of our day, can bind the power of God for salvation. The gospel will be proclaimed in all the world. Therefore, Paul goes on in 2 Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And later on, and it would be well worth your time to go home this afternoon and just read through the whole book of 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last letter. It's very worth it. His body beaten up by all the things that Paul endured, tired in spirit, but unbroken. He wrote to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. And just a couple of verses later, and when you come... Bring the cloak that I left at Car- with Carpus at Troas. Also, the books, and above all, the parchments. Which is kind of like Paul saying to Timothy, you know what, when you come, above everything else that I hope you'll bring, bring my old Bible. Bring the word of God, the books, and above all, the parchments. As I said earlier, Paul was one of those men who, if you cut him, bled scripture. And in the end, that's what happened. He wrote this gospel to the Romans, this book we're studying. He preached the gospel to the Romans eventually. And then when Nero Caesar had him beheaded for the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, it's what the church father Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I hope we understand this is the gospel that, as they say down south where I once lived, Paul is fixing to preach. He's moving in the very next verse from this introductory material into the gospel. And this is the gospel we will be studying together as we go forward. And this is the gospel which is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Even so, may God give us faith to believe. And may you give us the heart to proclaim this word of truth until every knee is bowed and every tongue has proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, our Father. Amen.